Mark chapter 10. We are in a series called Resolute, where Jesus has resolutely set his face for Jerusalem and the arrest and the cross and the crucifixion that awaits him. For the most part, his public ministry is over. He will still stop and teach. Um, he will still stop and heal people. But his face is set towards the cross. That's the reason why he came. And you're going to begin to see an urgency in his pace. You're going to begin to see a, a pointedness in his teaching. And I'm going to be honest with you. What we're going to look at today, has all, I've always wrestled with it a little bit. It's a little bit of a confusing story. Maybe for you it's been confusing. Maybe not. But I want to stop and unpack it. And I hope by the time we're done today, like they're like, okay, I can see the dots. I can connect some things. I hope it's game changer for how we see Jesus and how we see our relationship with God. So Mark chapter 10, if you have your Bible, open it up there. In verse 13, I'm not necessarily going to read verse 13, but if you remember when we went back last week and we talked about two pillar, fundamental things of Christianity is that it's kingdom first and the next generation needs to be a focus. Again, literally, just in the next chapter, Mark makes that emphasis again that Jesus is drawing kids to him. Parents are trying to bring their kids to Jesus. The disciples get involved and go, whoa, 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 he's too busy for that. And Jesus is like, no, no, bring him to me. Matter of fact, if anybody does anything to hurt one of these kids, woe is them. Like, it's not going to be good. Verse 15 says this, I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and he placed them, his hands on their heads, and he blessed them. So there's something about kids that Jesus is pointing at. They have a faith. They have an ability to believe that sometimes we adults who've been through some disappointment, been through some life, been through some moments where it feels like maybe God should have, but he didn't and he abandoned us. Kids have this faith that we don't have. And then he tells this story that can be confusing. It's a conversation between Jesus and a wealthy Jewish gentleman. And if you just read it, it's just another story that Jesus comes across as, okay, a little bit confusing. Especially if you're reading it from Oklahoma in 2023. Because we don't understand the context of living in Israel 2,000 years ago. We don't know, I mean, we, we read about them, we, we've been taught some, but we fully don't feel, taste, smell, experience the social expectations that were there, that were present this day. We don't necessarily understand the social cues, the social beliefs, and in a highly religious society that sometimes was used to manipulate people for the religious elite's benefit. We don't feel that. We don't necessarily know that. So this story is just another story. Mark 10, verse 17, it says, As Jesus was starting on his way, he's going to Jerusalem, as he was starting out on his way, a man came running up to him, knelt down, comes to a position of humility and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 18, Jesus says, Well, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. Okay? So verse 17, he was headed resolutely towards Jerusalem and this man interrupts his trip. And the man stops him and he says, good teacher. One scholar in, in, in says in all the Jewish historical writings, you never see a rabbi or a teacher referred to in this way. That word good is not used to reference any other teacher. 
Never again do we see good master or good teacher. So it did catch Jesus' attention the way this man approached him. And Jesus seizes the day. He takes this moment to make a point. Why, why do you call me good? Because only God is truly good. Are, are you saying what I think you're saying? So there's two options here. Two potential scenarios. Number one, the Jewish man truly believed Jesus was divine just like God. That he'd heard about Jesus and maybe he truly believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And so this is his low-key way of saying, good teacher, I know you are good just like God is good. That's scenario number one. And it is possible. Scenario number two is this man is just paying Jesus a very high compliment. And Jesus seizes that moment to make a point. Hey, you said I'm good, but really only God is good. <laughs> For today's conversation, the first idea I want you and I to understand from this story is God is good and Jesus is God. That's the point Jesus makes out of this moment where this guy stops and pays him a compliment and says, hey, good teacher. Jesus stops and says, whoa, 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 only God truly is good. Are you saying what I think you're saying? Now, I personally think he's just paying Jesus a compliment. He's intrigued by Jesus. He's been impressed by Jesus. He certainly knows Jesus has healed. He's done other miracles. He might believe Jesus is from God, maybe in the form of a prophet. But I don't know if he believes Jesus is the Son of God, and he pays Jesus this compliment, calling him good, and Jesus says, whoa, 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 only God is good. You're saying I'm good, and by the way, you're right, you've just identified me as the Son of God. And Jesus uses this quick moment in a conversation with a wealthy Jewish man to remind the crowd and to make a point, listen, I'm more than a prophet, I'm more than a teacher, I am the Son of God. God is good, and Jesus is God. If that makes sense, say amen. amen. That's the point he's making. All right? Then he says, enough about that. Let me ask your question. Because it's a really good question. Verse 19. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone, honor your father and your mother. Teacher, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. To the Jewish crowd that was listening that day, if you were a good Jewish boy or girl, you were born into eternal rights. Because you are a descendant of Abraham. Now, you keep the law to affirm that covenant. And, and you could be born outside of the Jewish bloodline. And you could be adopted in. But if you were born Jewish, you had to maintain that through obedience to the law. But your eternal standing was based primarily on your bloodline. And the young man says, listen, I've done all that. I've, I've not murdered. I've not cheated. I've honored my parents. To which I would say... Good for you, but hogwash or bull malarkey. I mean, I know you've probably been a good kid. I know you've probably worked hard. You've probably honored your parents. But my friend, there's not a day go by that any of us don't sin at some point in our life. And this rich young fellow has a false 
assessment of himself, which is a very dangerous place for us to ever be in. Oh, I've, I've done all that. I'm, I'm better than most. I mean, I've tried really hard to be a good person. That's the most dangerous lie that will send somebody to hell. I mean, I've, I've tried to follow the law. When, listen, when we compare ourselves to other people, you will never get a true good assessment of your standing where you are, whether it's spirituality, whether it's success, whether it's sin. If I compare where I'm at with other people, it will be a trap every time. Listen, I'm not as experienced. I'm not as gifted. I'm not as trained as somebody else, okay? And so if I'm, I'm, I'm comparing myself to them, I'm going to feel like a failure because they are so gifted and so trained or so experienced. Or if I'm out playing basketball with a third grader, I'm going to feel really good about my ball skills. We don't need to play the comparison game with other people about our position in life. Certainly we comes to a spiritual state. Because you can behave better than anyone and still not make it to heaven, my friends. Because that standing means absolutely nothing. So you say you've, you've kept all the commandments. You say that maybe you're a really great person. But the reality is the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 21, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. I, I just love this. I don't know why Mark in this moment just stopped and has this tender, compassion moment of intimacy in this relationship between Jesus and this Jewish young rich guy that's kind of trying to impress Jesus. But it says that Jesus just stopped and felt and had genuine love for him. Think about what he's doing. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And why is he going to Jerusalem? He's going to a cross to die for you and I. And he's going to a cross to die for this rich young man. And Jesus felt genuine love for him. And this is where this gets really confusing. He said, there's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven, and then come follow me. And that's powerful, but it's confusing at the same time. Right, verse 17 said he was on his way to Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the lost to be the perfect sacrifice so that you and I could place our faith in him. Jesus looks at this man who really has given everything his best. Like he, he, he tried to keep all the law. And I feel like Jesus is like, you're why I'm going to the cross. Because all of your best efforts are still not enough. You've worked, you've done, you've earned, you've kept the law, you've kept the commandments. But on the inside, that... Jewish guy knew something was still missing. And Jesus in his own way is saying, I'm trying to fill that missing void inside of you. And Jesus felt compassion for him. Just like on the cross, Jesus felt compassion for you and for me and for all of humanity would place their faith in him. And here it was. A young, rich Jewish man right in front of him. And it moved Jesus to compassion. He genuinely loved that man. That's a powerful moment. To a guy that had done all the things right. But after all of that, after keeping all the law, he was still missing something. Verse 21, look at it again. Look at the man. Jesus felt love for him. He says, there's still only one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions. Give the money to the poor. You have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. There's one thing you lack. 
Let's count what he says following that. There's one thing you lack. He says, go. There's one thing you lack. Sell all your possessions. There's one thing you lack. Give the money to the poor. There's one thing you lack. Come, follow me. I mean, there's four, depending on how you do that, come follow me. There's four or five things here, Jesus. I'm confused. You said there's one thing you lack, but then you just give him this list. Which is it? And this can be confusing, but it can also give ground. It can give space for some churches, for some Christians to teach manipulative bad theology. But to the Jewish listener, to the crowd that was there that day, that you and I, we don't understand what they understand. We don't know the smells. We don't understand the cultural pressure around them. To the people that were standing there that day, specifically the young Jewish wealthy man, it hit this cultural expectation right square in the face. There was an unspoken, maybe even spoken cultural belief there was this understanding in Israel that day, 2,000 years ago, that if you were wealthy, it's because God really loved you. If you were wealthy, it's because God really approved of you. Your eternity is certain because you are killing it in life down here. That was real that day when Jesus spoke to that rich young man. Because he walked up and had this question for Jesus. Like, I've kept all these rules. Oh, by the way, Jesus, I'm rich. Which means God must really, really love me. And Jesus, again, just turned all of that upside down. There was this cultural idea that wealth equated to God's blessing and God's love. And can we be real? That's not dead today. Our minds can go there really, really quickly. Let me prove it to you. Especially when we're like the young man in the story that we've honored our parents and we've not cheated anyone, we certainly haven't murdered anyone. We've done everything just to, to try to live for God, to do the best of our ability. We try and everything is just hard for us. And then you got that dude over there that don't even go to church. And, and even if he did go to church, he doesn't give and, and he cheats and he doesn't treat people right. And he's only wealthy because he's crooked business owner and his kids are rats. And he didn't even go to serve day, Right? And our doubt-filled minds in our own moment of struggle, when we're doing everything we can, but our life is hard, but it looks like it's easier for other people. Everything they touch is just easy. Everything they do is just blessed. Their business is always successful. It looks like God is just blessing everything they do. So it feels like he favors them over favoring me. And we can still fall into that line of thinking today. And in this moment of genuine love, this moment of sincerity, and this moment between Jesus and this rich young guy with this young man, like he has everything, go for me, he's done everything, right? Jesus wants to correct an incorrect theology of the day. And it speaks to us today, too, that number one, wealth does not equal God's blessing. Wealth equals wealth. And God's blessing equals God's blessing. Because God will bless poor people too. 
Wealth does not mean God loves you any more or any less than a poor person. Wealth will not get you into heaven. And there was a thought that day of the Jewish rich young ruler who had kept all the laws. I'm also wealthy, which means God must really love me. And Jesus was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh-uh. That's not how this works. Let me show it to you, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Keep in mind, the cultural understanding of the day was the rich were automatic because it meant God automatically, I mean, God must really love them and favor them. And Jesus said, listen, it's really hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. This amazed them. Because he was teaching something completely different than what the culture taught. Jesus said again, listen, dear kids, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 26. And the disciples were astounded. What you talking about, Willis? Because my whole life... I have heard that rich means God must really, really love you. Well, then, if the rich can't get it, then who in the world can be saved? See, verse 26 emphasizes the cultural belief of the day. That if you're rich, it means God loves you more than he does other people. What do you mean a rich person who God has clearly blessed, who God has clearly favored? What do you mean they can't enter the kingdom of God? If rich people can't, there's no chance for me. If rich people can't, then who can? Peter's like, Jesus, I gave up my business to follow you. And now you're telling me this? Did I waste my whole life? Did I waste all of that? The other disciples, they left their life. They left their families behind. They left their jobs. They left their businesses. And Jesus basically says, it's impossible for you to get into heaven. He says, it's impossible for a rich person to get into heaven. What he did not say was it's impossible for a middle class person to get into heaven. It's impossible for a homeless person to get into heaven. It's impossible for a poor person to get into heaven. What he's saying is, it's impossible for anyone to get into heaven. Nobody's going to make it. Verse 27. Then Jesus looked at the rich man intently and he said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible for rich, middle class, poor, homeless, whatever socioeconomic standing, it is impossible for you to make it to heaven but not with God. And here's the gospel right here. This is the good news he came to preach. Everything is possible with God. Amen, everybody. It's impossible to earn. It's impossible to give. It's impossible to sell. It's impossible to behave your way into heaven. It's impossible to do what this rich young man was trying to do. But the good news is with God, it's possible for all of us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. King Solomon in his book that he wrote called Ecclesiastes, which we have in our Bible, would tell us, listen, if your highest priority is to be rich, prepare yourself for dreadful consequences. Wealth is not bad. Wealth is hazardous. The pursuit of wealth, the priority of wealth 
if you'll let it, will destroy your soul. And Jesus came to earth in a time where there was a religious system that was able to manipulate and say, listen, if you're wealthy like us, then God really loves you and you're automatically going to get into heaven. And Jesus would tackle that incorrect theology. Ecclesiastes 2.10. This is Solomon describing it as king. As king. As wealthy king. Probably the wealthiest person on the earth when he wrote this. Anything I wanted I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work. A reward for all my labors. But as I looked at Everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Listen, wealth is not bad. The pursuit and the priority of wealth is dangerous. And Jesus uses this moment to align priorities. He addresses some bad cultural theologies that wealth does not equate God's love. Wealth doesn't equate God's blessing. Wealth is wealth, and God's blessing is God's blessing. This is what, like, like, I wish he would have said it this way in Mark chapter 10. He's looking at the man. He felt genuine love for him, but he said, there's still one thing you lack. What's the, okay, we listed off four or five, depending on how you count them. He really should have said it this way. There's just one thing you lack. Come follow me. Third point of our conversation today is salvation is only possible through Jesus. That's the point of this story. Wait, 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 only God is good. Why do you call me good? Are you saying what I think you're saying? Are you, are you saying that I'm the son of God? Well, you'd be right. Let me, let me take on this cultural idea that even still exists today in Oklahoma in 2023, that if you're wealthy, it's just because God blesses you. No, 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 no. Wealth will do nothing for you. Actually, it'll crater your soul. The point of this story is salvation is only possible through Jesus. It's impossible for rich people, but it's impossible for poor people. It's impossible for white people, for brown people, for green people, whatever. It's, it's impossible for tall people. It's impossible for short people. Jesus said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But here's the good news. The good God that sent me to be his good son came to die a death on a cross that would serve as a perfect sacrifice that would make it possible for you to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. My friends, this is why he was resolutely set for Jerusalem. Maybe you were the perfect child and obeyed all the rules. Maybe you never stuck your tongue out at mama. Maybe everything you touch turned to gold. Maybe your life has just been easier than everyone else. Maybe in school, you just didn't have to work as hard. With money, it just came your way. With wisdom, with relationships, maybe that all just came easy for you. I'm telling you that is still not enough to get you into heaven. You still have to follow Jesus. You can be poor. You can be homeless. You could have made all the bad choices in life. You could have done all the wrong things. You could have walked. You could have run as far far away from God as possible, woke up feeling hopeless and unlovable. And that love that Jesus felt for that rich young man that day, he's also felt that same love for you. That's why he let a Roman soldier nail him to a cross. 
he feels that same genuine love for you and I. I also believe he would have taken that same journey just for you. If I was the only one, if you were the only one, I still believe Jesus would have resolutely set his face for Jerusalem and laid down his life. Because with God, all things were possible, like second chances, like spiritual rebirths. Regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you've failed, we all lack one thing. Follow him. And I'm wondering if there's someone here today that maybe you need to take that first step. And just follow Jesus. Here's the beauty of it. Like, you, you, don't, you don't need to go clean some stuff up. That'll happen later. That becomes part of the spiritual growth. Like you, you, you can't clean yourself up good enough for Jesus to accept you. It's impossible. That's where faith comes in. That's where grace that Cassie so eloquently talked about. You just need to do one thing. Take the step. And follow Jesus. Here's the gospel. plain, pure and simple as I can make it. That all of us, rich, poor, tall, short, red and yellow, black and white, all of us it's impossible for us to make it to heaven in and what we can do for ourselves. I can't give enough I can't behave well enough I can't clean my life up enough to earn it it's called being dead to sin and while you and I were stuck and dead in our sin Jesus resolutely set his face for Jerusalem he laid his life down he who was God, he was a good God, he was the son of God, he lived a perfect life, he qualified to be the sacrifice that could pay for the sins of you and I. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus said, I'll go, you can shed my blood, I'll qualify. He was crucified on a cross. Three days later, he supernaturally rose from the grave. There was no voice that called him out. There was no prophet, there was no person. It was just the divine power of God in his cold, dead body that resurrected him to life. The book of Romans says, if you and I would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if he's a good God, if we believe in our heart, God supernaturally raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's our way of saying, follow him. That's our way of taking that step.